welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you the second part of a story. If you haven't heard part one of Nani's Attic yet, please go back and do so. Once again, this is by author James Bowden, whose new book, Nightmare Fuel, is available now on Amazon, and there's a link in the show notes. Now, here is the finale of Nani's Attic. Chapter 4 I fought against the compulsion to yawn my way through the showing. Today it was fancy condos, and the commission promised to be something nice enough that I could take Isaac to Cuba for Valentine's Day, like I'd planned. I thought that would be a nice surprise for my husband, especially after his help with cleaning out Nani's house. It had been almost a month, and I wish I could have said that the weird occurrences had stopped, but they'd only gotten worse. It would have helped if Isaac had been a co-witness to these things. Unfortunately, They only seemed to happen when Isaac was absent in some way, out of the apartment, or in the shower, or asleep. As a result, every time I talked about it, Isaac would just say it was a nightmare. Though he was a believer in the paranormal, given half the chance he could talk for hours about all the weird things he'd supposedly seen, he was also a realist. The few times I'd try to bring it up, Isaac just suggested it was my grief for Nani, and I quickly gave up. Logically, the next step probably should have been to talk to someone or look it up online, but I hadn't had the nerve to do either. If I did that, it would make it real. It meant I probably wasn't crazy or grieving or whatever. It was something. Sure, the Quran talked about jinn, but I'd never expected to actually be harassed by a bad one. I thought it was just metaphorical, like how Isaac's family talked about Noah's Ark or something. They weren't supposed to be real. If I tried to talk to someone, what would stop them from calling me crazy and dismissing my claims out of hand? I excused myself from my clients for a bathroom break in order to rub my temples and take a breath. I needed to figure this out, if for no other reason than to get a good night's sleep for the first time in weeks. The last thing I needed was for my personal problems to affect my sales. I looked up and stared at myself in the bathroom mirror. I can do this, I whispered to myself. Then... As I took a slow breath to steady my nerves, I ignored the shadow standing at my back and went back to my clients. In spite of my little self-talk, I truly didn't know how much longer I could keep doing this. Isaac was getting worried, so were my sisters and my mother. All of them would call me daily to talk, even when I had very little to say. Every time my phone rang with their personalized ringtone, Isaac would look away guiltily, 
which gave me the distinct impression that he'd told them what was going on. Admittedly, I was too tired to be properly angry with him and would just play dumb as I answered the calls. To my family, I truly didn't know what to say. None of us were overtly religious, not like how Nani had been, at any rate. I was pretty sure that if I told them the things that had been happening, they would think I was suffering from some kind of mental illness, not the manifestation of a jinn. As always, I played off their concerns and claimed I was just tired from work. And Isaac frowned at me in clear disappointment. As January moved into February, Isaac and I began to plan our vacation. He was positively giddy at the notion of going to Cuba for Valentine's Day. But little did he know, we were headed to a luxury resort, and we would be waited on hand and foot while we were there. In hindsight, I think I splurged on the luxury resort more for me than us as a couple. The weeks since Nani's passing had been rough, and not just because of this thing that was happening. Grief was exhausting, and I think even without the gin, I would have desperately needed this vacation. Still, Isaac and I had a blast filling up an extra suitcase with toys that we'd bought at a local toy store, which we planned to donate to the local orphanage, a time-honored custom that we always had fun with. And yet, in spite of all the joy the preparation brought me, I still had the shadow of the djinn hanging over me. There was no point in denying it any longer. My nightmares were filled with dark shadows of screaming and incomprehensible languages I recognized by sound, if not the specific words. I would wake up frozen, a scream caught in my throat as the shadow man bore down on me and growled. I needed to stop this. Trouble was, I had no idea how. Chapter 5 It didn't take a genius to work out that my breaking of the vase had been the catalyst that started all this craziness, and my first instinct had been to look up ways to capture a djinn. Unfortunately, the only results I came across were emphatic do-nots from lay people and a mom alike. Well, Nani definitely did it, I thought peevishly. Why is it so dangerous? When another web search turned up nothing useful, I pushed away the mouse with a frustrated growl. Behind me, in the dark and quiet of the apartment, I heard something let out. A low, unsettling chuckle. (laughs) Though I really didn't want to, I knew that I needed to speak to an expert before I even attempted something as monumentally stupid as trying to bind a gin by myself. That was what led to me canceling my showings for the day and driving through a snowstorm out to Laval, where I had scheduled a meeting with Imam Khan, who had agreed to speak with me privately. Sammy! Imam Khan called jovially from the mosque doors, 
waving as I exited my car with my head bowed in a vain effort to shield myself from the snow. Come, come, out of this weather. I thanked him as I hurried up to him and bowed my head as Imam Khan welcomed me inside. For the meeting, I had chosen to wear my topi, but in truth, I had no idea if the gesture was overkill. After all, it wasn't exactly a secret that my family rarely attended the mosque any longer. We wove through the back rooms of the mosque until we reached his office. It was fairly spartan and unadorned, save for a bookcase at the back of the space that was jam-packed with books and loose sheafs of paper that bore notes in Urdu and Arabic. What brings you in, my son? He asked as we both sat down, him behind his desk and I in the chair across from it. I don't think I've seen you since your poor Anani's funeral. Uh, it's sort of complicated, Imam Khan. I said hesitantly, directing my gaze to my knees as I spoke, while I fiddled with a loose thread on the sleeve of my jacket. Speak to me, my son, not to your knees, Imam Khan said, his voice gentle but commanding, and I forced myself to look up. Start from the beginning and tell me what troubles you. I obeyed. Starting from the very beginning, when I broke that pot, I told Imam Khan everything. The manifestation, how my partner believed it was nothing but nightmares, how it only seemed to happen when I was alone, or at night, or in my dreams. Everything. I... I don't know what to do, Imam Khan. I rasped, my voice shaking as I tried to keep myself from crying. God, I was just so tired of all of this. I I tried to research how to bind it again, but all my resources told me not to. So I came to you. I, I didn't know who else to speak to. It is good that you came to me, my son. Imam Khan said gently, while he reached across the table and squeezed my hand. What you are enduring is very grave, and it is not a coincidence that you felt the need to seek me out. Just as your nani had all those years ago. I froze. Uh, what? I squeaked, and Imam Khan chuckled. <laughs> when I left what is now Pakistan, and found myself in New Delhi. Your nani was so welcoming of me and my family. She taught us to speak Hindi, and she was very much non-traditional. Imam Khan chuckled when my face went blank, making it pretty clear how stunned I was by that remark. My nani? Non-traditional? It sounded totally crazy. What do you mean? I finally managed to ask, and Imam Khan smiled at me, slyly. Well, it began when your nani and I went on a walk, Imam Khan said. We were young, and though we were both from Muslim families, mine had a particular secret. I hadn't even told your nani, 
who, for all her non-traditional traits, was quite devoted to her service of Allah. She wouldn't understand. But then, when I escorted her home, a cobra slithered its way with us. Your poor Nani was terrified of the cobra's poison, and I panicked. Before I could stop her, she beheaded it with a shovel. Imam Khan bowed his head, sadly, and I grimaced. I didn't need to ask Imam Khan why that small action was so grave. It was believed that if a snake entered your home, you must first ensure that it wasn't a jinn in disguise before you dispatched it. My nani had always abided by that rule, even in Canada. The jinn latched itself to her in revenge for her act, and she spent months being accosted. Imam Khan continued. She came to me at last, weeping, when our imam did not believe her tale. I was on the cusp of asking Imam Khan how he could have helped. If I had my math right, he probably was in his late teens or early twenties at the time. What could a pair of teenagers do against a jinn? After all, I was in my mid-thirties and I felt like I could barely handle it. You see, before our family began to follow Allah's teachings, we were Arabic pagans, Imam Khan explained, his eyes firmly set upon me as he spoke. Our witchcraft is condemned by Allah, but our family still practiced it. Think of it like Kabbalah with the Jewish faith. However, Allah is far more strict, and it is against his teachings in all forms. But you still practiced it, didn't you? I filled in, and Imam Khan smirked. I did. He said. I have not for many decades, but at that time, it was the only thing I could do to help your nani when our religious leaders would not do anything to aid her. I used my family's ancient teachings to draw the jinn to your nani, bind it to a vessel, and seal it away. I wanted to bury it deep in the desert, in a place where it would never be found. But your nani feared that it would be discovered as the city expanded. She kept it close, recited prayers to ensure that it would stay sealed away, and even brought it with her to Canada, where, unfortunately, you crossed its path. So, what do I do now? Pray, my son. Imam Khan said as he directed his gaze to his desk and picked up a notebook. As Imam, I cannot participate in those forbidden rituals. But, Imam Khan, surely you can do it just this once. I, I have no one else to help me. I am afraid not, my son, he said as he picked up a pen and scribbled something onto a blank page of the notebook, and then ripped it out. If it were to get out that I 
participated in such a ritual. I would be relieved of my post as a mom. The people need me. He folded up the paper smaller and smaller until it was the size of a quarter and pressed it firmly into my hand. Is that all, my son? I grumbled out a polite goodbye, then shuffled from the building. Imam Khan smiled pleasantly as he guided me out, and neither of us said a word about what we'd discussed back in his office. I got the feeling that Imam Khan would have played dumb and denied it if I even tried to broach the subject. I climbed back into my car, glaring at the snow-covered windshield, and as I clenched my hand into a fist, I felt the folded paper dig into my palm. In my disappointment, I'd completely forgotten about it. I switched on the car light, and I unfolded the paper. As soon as I read what was scrawled there, I let out a laugh. My home. 11 p.m. Bring a jar and come alone. Chapter 6 Because my nani had been such good friends with Imam Khan, we had been to his home many times over the years, though the frequency of these visits took a significant downturn after we all gradually stopped going to the mosque as often. He still treated us all like nieces and nephews, and never judged us for our choice to not attend the mosque regularly. As a result, I still remembered the route to his home. However, upon my arrival, I was surprised when he insisted on guiding me in the dark to his back door, almost like he didn't want anyone to spot us. Beyond that, Imam Khan didn't speak much. He instructed me to leave my phone upstairs. Then he led me to an unfinished basement with an icy cement floor, the cold sinking directly into my socked feet and making me shiver. What we are doing is very dangerous, my son, Imam Khan warned as he shut the door and locked it. I am confident in my abilities, but this will only work if you promise to keep the jar safe and ensure that the correct prayers are spoken afterwards to ensure the jinn stays bound. Do you understand? I swallowed nervously, but forced myself to nod. It was too late to back out now. I understand, I said. Good. Then, we will begin. Imam Khan guided me in the traditional ablutions, beginning with a silent prayer to Allah, then washing of the face, hands, and feet in a specific order. This was something I knew how to do. It had been drilled into me from a young age, and Imam Khan smiled at me approvingly, as though he was proud that I remembered how to do it. Did you bring the jar, my son? Imam Khan asked once we'd prepared ourselves, and I nodded as I reached into the bag I brought with me, and I pulled out a 500 milliliter mason jar. I held it out to him, and he accepted it with a small nod of approval. 
Imam Khan screwed off the top and handed it to me. Then he pulled what seemed to be a marker from his pocket. But upon closer inspection, I realized that it was one of those paint pens that artists use. In flowing Arabic script, he wrote something directly onto the jar. My Arabic was rusty, to say the least, but I understood enough to know that it was a prayer to keep the jinn from escaping. As I watched Imam Khan work, I felt both my nervousness and hope mount in equal measure. Then, just as quickly, my positivity vanished when the air turned icy cold. Take my hand, my son, Imam Khan said with an urgent whisper. It knows what is about to happen, and it will try to stop us. I nodded and reached for Imam Khan's hand. Imam Khan held up the jar to me, and I clutched its available side, mindful not to touch the lettering which was probably still drying. The bare bulb that illuminated the basement shivered, the light beginning to flicker from the moment I touched the jar. I tried to breathe in when a sudden strange wind stole my breath from me, leaving me gasping. Imam Khan's voice boomed, shouting something in Arabic into the wind, but that seemed to only make it whip around us faster. As Imam Khan shouted, I truly didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I watched the wind whip around us. Imam Khan shouted fearlessly into the gale as exposed beams in the basement trembled. It was like they were threatening to be ripped out of the place, or maybe even splinter into a million pieces. I wasn't really sure. Imam Khan hadn't given me any instructions except to hold the jar and his hand, so I did the only thing I could do in that moment. I prayed. I felt like a fraud, even as tears streamed down my cheeks, even as shards of wood whipped out of the walls and pierced my and Imam Khan's arms, making us bleed, even as we choked on sawdust and our eyes stung. I prayed for this being to leave me, to have Nani's strength to see it through, to help Isaac stop worrying about me, and to make our home safe again. Angry, inhuman snarls pierced the howling wind. It almost seemed to drown out Imam Khan's commands and prayers. His fingers dug into my hand almost to the point of pain. I tensed my eyes shut and prayed harder. I gasped when I felt sharp pain down my back and the unwilling inhalation fill my lungs with debris, making me hack and cough, turning away from Imam Khan so that I didn't cough on him and possibly distract him from his ritual. Keep going, Imam Khan shouted. We're almost there. I wasn't certain what he meant by that. Even as I went back to praying, my throat was raw like I'd been screaming and I felt something warm on my back. Blood. The injury, whatever it was, stung as the fabric of my shirt rubbed against it. I was almost too distracted by the injury to remember to keep praying. When I resumed my prayers, I felt another bolt of white-hot pain against my back, this time accompanied by an inhuman shriek. Imam Khan's voice grew stronger. His sandpaper voice sounded how my throat felt, and for a moment, I thought he was actually managing to increase the volume of his commands, but no, it wasn't that. Not exactly. The wind was starting to die down, 
A gust of wind to my face startled me and almost broke me from my prayers. It reminded me how tenuous our goal of the situation truly was and how I needed to focus if I ever wanted to have my life back. I returned to my prayer. More pain blossomed in my neck, but I tried to ignore it, like the djinn was trying to hold on to me and stay free and not go back into a container. I knew my back was cut to ribbons by this point. I didn't even know how I was still praying and not some kind of crying mess on the floor. Isaac always loved to tease me about how I had the pain tolerance of a five-year-old. Isaac. The image of my husband bloomed into my mind and I felt my resolve strengthen. Get out of my life, you son of a bitch! I prayed, directing it to the djinn, and I heard another shriek. This one. Of fury. And then all at once, the wind died. Completely. Imam Khan snatched the jar's lid from my hand, clapped down on the opening, and screwed it shut. He was still praying, but breathing hard. He was covered in dust and debris, with deep, dark circles under his eyes. Though the ritual couldn't have taken more than 15 minutes, he looked more like he'd been trekking through a hot desert for hours. I opened my mouth to ask a question, but Imam Khan held up a hand to silence me. I obeyed, snapping my mouth shut, while Imam Khan spoke his prayers as he stared deep into the jar. It is done, my son. He said at last, and he held out the jar to me. I didn't know what I expected, but maybe for there to be something in the jar, some kind of change to its appearance, but it just looked like a normal, empty mason jar, albeit written all over with Arabic text. What do I do now? I asked almost reticent to take the jar from his hands, even though I knew the gin was sealed away. Put it some safe place, Imam Khan advised. Somewhere people will not disturb it. If you ever enter the space where the jar is held, make sure to recite a dua. It is bound, but a little extra precaution is never a bad thing, my son. Thank you, Imam Khan, I replied as I smiled at him gratefully. I... I didn't know who else to trust, and... It is forgotten, my son, he replied, even as he smiled at me warmly, almost in a grandfatherly way. Now it is past. Be grateful for this chance Allah has given you. I didn't really know what to say to that, but I smiled as the jar was pressed carefully into my hands, and I felt that cold feeling of unease wash over me again. That made it feel more real, like everything that had happened since Nani's death and my accidental release of the djinn wasn't some kind of wild dream. I hugged the jar to my chest intent on showing Imam Khan how seriously I was taking his warnings. But the movement reminded me of the injuries on my back, 
and I let out a small gasp of pain. Imam Khan's brow furrowed with concern, and he touched my arm as he guided me upstairs without a word. As it would turn out, my back was a mess. Checking it in the mirror, it looked like a hundred pissed-off cats had taken a swipe at me, and Imam Khan was kind enough to clean me up before I headed on my way. Even as I grimaced a little, my back would not be tanning-friendly for me and Isaac's trip to Cuba anytime soon. Still, as I headed home, I felt... Actually, I have no idea what I felt. It was a weird mix of joy and sorrow, relief and utter bone-deep exhaustion. Knowing my Nani experienced something similar made me feel a little bit better. As I left a mom con's company and headed home, the jar carefully wrapped up in paper, I promised myself that the next trip me and Isaac took would be to India. Even if my family refused to see me, I would confront them and tell them how strong I was, even in the face of their rejection. I loved a good man and was well-loved in return. I had the strength of spirit to protect us from the unseen and the seen, visible and invisible, and I had the strength of my love to shout it from the rooftops, even if those homophobic pricks didn't want to hear it. It was the least I could do for Nani. Not just for Nani, but for me. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to my author, James Bowden. Please go support their work. Uh, They have two books available on Amazon. Just click on their author name and it will take you to all of them. Again, link in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was so much fun to record and edit. And yeah, just had it. This was a joy. This was a joy of a story. I can't wait to see what everyone says about the finale on Facebook and Twitter and all that. Um, Remember, you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, all at Scare You to Sleep. And what else? Oh, if you have a story you'd like to be considered for the show, send it to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Um, if you'd like to join Patreon, for only $1 a month, you get all ad-free episodes. And for $3 and up, you get bonus episodes. So if you'd like to go over to Patreon, if you love this show and you just discovered it, and you'd like to make it a little easier for yourself to fall asleep without the ads, then Patreon is the best place to do that. Speaking of Patreon, again, um, the schedule has been crazy. I've explained that to you for the last few months. So we will be getting back on track with more bonus episodes and all that fun stuff. And I don't remember if I said this last week, but thank you to all of you. I have finally been uh, accepted into the YouTube partner program so I can officially monetize my videos. And I'm very, very excited about it. Thank you so much to those of you who viewed my videos and put in the hours to help me get to where I am now. And so, yes, there will be more videos on YouTube. I already have a few in the works. 
so excited about that, including a vlog of the live show, which I think I mentioned last week. Let's see, this week I did do a little baking. I made some cranberry orange muffins. Uh, if you'd like to make the same recipe I did, I used Preppy Kitchen's uh, recipe. So good. Very, very good recipe. They turned out excellent. Um, and I ate so, so many of them. <laughs> I basically ate my weight in cranberry orange muffins this week. Uh, it's a fun. It's one of my fun favorite fall recipes is cranberry orange muffins. Uh, so yeah, let's see. I'm not going to talk that much. Again, my voice is still kind of recovering and I had a lot of meetings this week and all that. And oh, and once again, next week, the show will be back on schedule. This week was out of whack because of my illness, but next week we'll be back on schedule and I'm going to go because I am still a little bit on vocal rest and I know you'll understand. Thank you so much. All right. You know the drill. Go drink your water. Go get some sleep and sweet dreams.